From Charleston, South Carolina, welcome to Garden and Guns Whole Hog, the podcast that explores the best of Southern culture. I'm your host, John Huey. Today's episode is brought to you by Butcher and Bee, located in Charleston, South Carolina, and with a second location now in East Nashville, Tennessee, Butcher and Bee works with local farms and ingredients to create an ever-changing menu of honest and delicious food. Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, George Herbert Walker Bush, Franklin Roosevelt, and Winston Churchill. What do these historic figures hold in common? Well, for starters, they've all been the subjects of books written by our guest today, John Meacham. John, welcome to Gardening Guns Whole Hog. Thank you, sir. A Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Presidential Histories, the prize came for Andrew Jackson, and a regular on Morning Joe and other TV news spots, John has just finished a new book called The Soul of America. Of course, you are also a teacher at Vanderbilt and Sewanee and a senior editorial executive at Random House and a very successful journalist. All that, and yet you choose to live with your wife and children in Nashville. Why are you there? And how does that work? And have you taken up the steel guitar? Well, I'm wounded that a man who managed to run a great publishing empire and live in Charleston would even have to ask the question. But uh, we uh, we spent 20 years in Washington and New York and uh, sobered up uh, about six, seven years ago and decided to uh, to come home, really. Uh, I'm from Chattanooga. My wife is from uh, the Mississippi Delta. The only sense in which she married up was marrying a Tennessean. So I visited your home in Bellmead. It's a capacious, comfortable <laughs> pile in the old school. But it has a very modern secret that helps you deal with some of the pressures yes. of this life. Can you tell us about the Bat Cave? This is a 1929 house built clearly just seconds before uh, the Hoover crash. And yeah, uh, It has a basement that reminds me a little bit of Big Daddy's basement <laughs> in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. <laughs> you can see you and Brick sitting down in the basement <laughs> rummaging through things. But over in the corner, there's this black coal mine. That's right. Thing. That's right. The uh, So in the basement floods, of course, because it's all basements do. And so they had to build up a um, – basically, it's a box. I, I think of it uh, – I, like I like the Tennessee Williams. I sometimes think of it as this is the way I fully become Boo Radley. So I never <laughs> have to leave the house. Uh, I'm getting paler. Uh, it's awful. Uh, but they have this thing now. It's amazing where all I have to do uh, is push a button. The camera comes on. They control the camera from New York. The uh, they took a picture of my bookcase upstairs. They put it on a screen behind me, so I had to push a second button for that. Plug the IFB, the sound, into my cell phone, and it's there. We are, you know, and then we're off to the races. So um, I'm frequently asked whether I'm wearing pants. The answer is yes. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the other thing it allows me to do, uh, and my friend Casey Hunt uh, is is after me to do this is. During commercial breaks, because it's in the basement, I'll puff on a cigar, which, of course, is illegal now, I think. But they they have footage of this that they are threatening at some point to air. And I think it will make me Edward R. Murrow. So I'm okay with it. That's great. Good night and good luck. <laughs> exactly. So um, now you've described – we've all seen you sitting in that um, 
Tony traditional library, and we now know it's a completely <laughs> simulated environment down in a hole in the basement. Yeah, but yeah. none of that takes away from your credentials as a true uh, Southern man of letters. And I wonder, if, before we get into your books, if you could walk us through some of the books, both fiction and nonfiction, both historic and contemporary, that you think anyone aspiring to be literate in the Southern canon needs to have read. Well, the book that meant the most to me, and I reread it about two years ago, just to test whether this is still true, and it is, is All the King's Men. Um, and you'll appreciate this because it involves two of our best buddies. When I was a sophomore at Macaulay School in Chattanooga, I um, read, in one summer, I read All the King's Men, and then a new book had just come out called The Wise Men by uh, uh, yes. uh, Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas, uh, two great Americans. So I read All the King's Men. Then I read The Wise Men, which is about the foreign po- – for, for, the, for the few who don't know, it's, it's the uh, foreign policy establishment in the middle of the uh, 20th centuries, Averill Harriman and Bob Lovett and George Kennan and Chip Bolin, Dean Acheson. And it's wonderful narrative popular history all about – totally devoted to the Henry Luce idea that it is men, not forces. It's human factors, not uh, abstract uh, forces that shape history. And those who know all the king's men, and that's, I suspect that's everybody who's, who's listening, uh, knows that's exactly what Warren's thesis was, that there is a tragic yet perennial – undertaking at the heart of politics, which is the personality of the person who uh, accrues power, unquestionably affects the exercise of that power. And so I'd finished the two books and then I decided – and again, I'm 15, I think, and maybe maybe because I couldn't drive. This was one of the reasons I did it. So then I read them both again. Well, and because you're you're like that. Yeah. <laughs> so years later, I'm having my uh, job interview for Newsweek. And I go over to have lunch with Evan, who's then the Washington Bureau Chief of Newsweek. And I said, I can, you know, I, we sat down. I said, I, I, I got to tell you, this is a huge honor for me because I, when I was in the 10th grade, I read your book twice. And, uh, and Evan looked at me in that wonderful high wasp way and said, you must have been a real loser. Uh, <laughs> which, which had its virtue, as Dr. Kissinger would say, it had the virtue of being true. Um, so I think Warren is is key. I'm also a big fan of Warren's less well-known novels. I think A Place to Come To is really interesting. Um, the, the, the older books, uh, you know, he was incredibly prolific uh, and make it sort of discouragingly so. Um, Throw another couple of non-Warren books on that cannon fire. I think – now, this is a Tennessean's view. I think Peter Taylor, uh, who's just been re-released in Library of Summons America. Summons to Memphis or – Summons to Memphis and the stories. Uh, uh, Ann Beatty just did a uh, the Library of America edition of Taylor. And all of us maybe, – maybe this says more about me than I want it to. But Warren uh, – Taylor's protagonists are almost all conflicted uh, – upper middle class to upper class white men who are struggling with the panoply of forces in the South about race and gender and um, trying to find them their way. And in many ways, Taylor, I think, is as important to the South as Cheever is to New England. 
You know, ah. that there is a, there's a... Dis- haven't heard that before. Interesting thesis. Well, you, he can write about... I, I'm not arguing yeah, with Yeah, he can I, write about Nashville versus Chattanooga versus Sewanee versus Memphis versus St. Louis in a way that you would think it's Balzac, talking about different uh, neighborhoods in, 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 in Paris or, or Dickens with different uh, districts in London. And um, I don't think he's as widely read as he should be, so I think that's that's important. I've always tried to like Flannery O'Connor more than I have. Um, that's because you're not from Georgia. Well, that's true, and nor am I Catholic. Uh, but I, there, I have dipped back on occasion in recent years, and um, some of those, everything that rises must converge, is just a, a phenomenal story. I think the best. Now here, and we have to get to Faulkner, of course, because that's yeah. you know, in the statutes uh, of a conversation like this. I have a, um, a slightly contrarian view. I think the flat, the Sartorist books. I think the Flags in the Dust, the Unvanquished, that that series, I find wonderful. The great novels everyone talks about: Sound and the Fury, Light in August, a- Absalom, Absalom. Yeah, I, I find almost impenetrable. Uh, just as a as a late twentieth century, early twenty first century reader, but I think his story, A Rose for Emily is ah, yeah. one of the best stories in the language. Uh, it's just wonderful. And uh, it ends, I won't give it away, uh, but it ends with this, one of the best kickers, as we would say in journalism, uh, that I've ever seen. Um, uh, Ms. Welty, I find, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by her. I'm fascinated by the fact that she did those WPA photographs. Uh, her photography is really interesting. Um, Delta Wedding is a marvelous book. Um, and so, so none of this is particularly su- surprising perhaps, but um, Maya Angelou, uh, I think her portrait of childhood in Arkansas and segregated Arkansas is is phenomenal. Um, that's a memoir, but um, it's just, uh, just incredible. And this is not precisely Southern, uh, but 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 the the right Baldwin canon, um, and also, and I just came through this as you know, um, doing a lot of work on on civil rights uh, for the project I just did. Dr. King's sermons deserve to be studied as literature, um, in a way that John Winthrop's sermon. Uh, on the way over the city upon a hill or Jonathan Edwards uh, or Henry Beecher, uh, Henry Ward Beecher. Um, sermons don't – aren't often treated as literature but when you think about the significance of the ecclesiastical tradition in the South, they should be. And when you read King's uh, sermons – and there's a lot of overlap. Uh, if you had to preach as much as he did, you'd be borrowing from yourself too. But there is a um, there's a synthesis there, uh, a literary sense of the synthesis for a Southern man educated in the North, um, uh, Boston University, uh, Crozier Theological in, uh, in 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 Pennsylvania. He brought back this Augustinian sense of sin and a Niebuhrian, Reinhold Niebuhrian sense of the fallen nature of man and how complicated it is uh, to make the world better in a, in a political sense. And all the way through, and even if you just read one, uh, 
don't necessarily go to the March on Washington one. That, that's the American canon. One that should be in the American canon is his last Sunday sermon. It was March 31st, 1968. He was preaching at the National Cathedral in that great Canterbury uh, pulpit. And it had the title of a, of a perennial sermon he gave called Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. But it has this, this remarkable sense of an American understanding of the tragedy and possibilities of history. But as always, I find that the Southern experience, the Southern manifestation of all of those forces are simply more vivid, simply more um, drawn, drawn more deeply uh, than, than the broader national ones. And so I, I would recommend the King sermons. The only thing I would argue for is including something by Walker Percy, either yeah. the moviegoer or the last gentleman, just because it represents that whole sort of post-planter existentialism mm -hmm. from the Delta in New Orleans that just isn't done like that anywhere else. And his, his nonfiction, too. There's a great collection. Um, I think Jay Tolson did it called Signposts in a Strange Land. There's a little genre, and there are only two entries in it, but I find it fascinating. Warren did some nonfiction uh, on race, as you know. In, in 1956, he did a book called Segregation, the Inner Conflict in the South, or the Inner Conflict, Segregation in the South. I never, it was published a couple of different ways. Uh, it was started out as an assignment for Life magazine. And when he came to put it as a book, uh, he included at the end a self-interview. And if you read three pages of this, that's the thing to do because this is a conversation with a man and between a man and a man who in 1930 when he was here in Nashville at Vanderbilt wrote a uh, defense of Jim Crow essentially, a, a, um, a defense of the, the slavery as a way of life, a very sentimental lost cause essay and repudiated it as he was doing this, this project 25 years later. And it's just a really interesting uh, – it's, it's, you're allowed to eavesdrop on an interior monologue with this remarkable man of letters. Percy, Dr. Percy did the same thing in um, a couple of self-interviews that are included in that signpost collection. And if you ever want to have the capacity to have the chance, again, to eavesdrop on their conscience, I think that, that's a good place to go. He also has an essay, I think, in that same book on the joy of drinking cheap bourbon. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. We'll have more of our interview with John Meacham, including a discussion of his work as a presidential biographer and his new book, The Soul of America. But first, a word about our generous sponsor who makes this magic possible. Butcher and Bee's restaurants in Charleston, South Carolina and East Nashville, Tennessee are hot spots for hip patrons who love great food and creative conversation. People line up day and night for their handcrafted sandwiches, exotic mezzes, and healthy rice bowls. Likewise, their baked goods, coffees, and cold-pressed juices. Also, a remarkable double cheeseburger. My personal favorites, the bacon wrap dates, and the shakshuka. You get the idea. 
Everything is made with fresh, locally sourced seasonal ingredients, and I can personally attest that it's all really tasty, even stuff you might not normally order. So when you find yourself looking to dine in either of these popular southern cities, be sure to stop by Butcher and Bee for lunch and dinner, and be sure to thank them for their sponsorship of Garden and Guns Whole Hog. And now, back to our show. So when you go to take on one of these books that you do, uh, it's a big commitment, it, and it involves a huge chunk of your life. It means spending years with a person, often dead. Uh, how do you choose these subjects? I mean, in, in the case of Jefferson, for example, it seemed like such well-plowed ground, but yet you managed to find new earth. And, and and is it true that you slept in Monticello to see the sunrise as Jefferson would have? I did. I did. I My test on these things is, and the Bush book is separate, and we can talk about that, but on Jackson, on uh, Jefferson, on Roosevelt and Churchill, which is kind of a dual biography, uh, the, the ground I tried to find thematically was – was there a place in the popular conversation where this person was either misunderstood or, as George W. Bush would say, misunderestimated? <laughs> uh, and could, you know, was was there room to rectify that? And what happened with Jackson was I had just published Franklin and Winston in 2003. And that had been driven in part – I started in 98 – uh, and part of it, and you'll appreciate this in particular, and I'm, I'm, I think you would know this in your bones as well. Part of what, the reason I wanted to do it is that Churchill and Roosevelt, both of whom were heroes of mine, just from the Jim Burns uh, books about FDR and from the Manchester books about Churchill and from the Churchill books about Churchill, which meant they had their effect, um, was – and I was – you know, a young guy in national journalism at that point. And one of the things that, as you know, that happens in national political journalism is you are seen as uh, a shill or a sentimentalist if you actually give credit to a leader for doing something right, right? Exactly. So if a president comes out and does something that seems remarkable, if you say that, if you write it, suddenly you're, you're part of the establishment. And I will say, but for the ideological, for people who, and there are going to be people in your MSNBC caucus and people in your Fox News caucus, presumably, who will think of this as affirmation of what they think. The point is they should be unified on this because no press corps was ever as relentlessly and I would argue as reflexively uh, negative about Bill Clinton than the National Press Corps. In the 1992 campaign, George Bush, George H.W. Bush was rightly uh, puzzled and hurt uh, and angered that everything Bill Clinton did was seen as cool and everything he did was seen as retro. Now, to some extent, that's fair. You remember when Bill Clinton went on Arsenio Hall, right, and sort of changed the – George Bush thought that Arsenio Hall was a building at Andover. I mean he had no idea. So it was just a different thing, um, a different generational thing. <laughs> but I'll never forget uh, sort of 
I came in th- that story a couple years later. But it was very clear that there had been implicit, if not explicit, conversations about, look, this is a generational shift. I know that the boomer journalists, by and large, very much want their guy to do well. But we have to be as tough on him as we were on Bush, as we were on Reagan, as we were on Carter, as we were on Ford, as we were on Nixon. And so suddenly you get into this reflexively adversarial. Yeah, I think people forget that, for example, Maureen Dowd, the New York Times columnist, won her Pulitzer Prize for basically scraping uh, the hide off of Bill Clinton over and over and over. She did not win it for attacking Republicans or conservatives. And then here you are, the former editor of Newsweek, and you take on a large life conservative mm-hmm. Republican George Herbert Walker Bush, really dive in there, write a magnificent authoritative book, and find a good deal of greatness. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Well, it's it wasn't journalism. And I think that that's a fundamental shift, and it's one that I've, I've tried to make. And it, I, I love, honor, uh, respect uh, our colleagues, former colleagues who are still doing this no longer day-to-day or week-to-week, but second-to-second. But there is a difference. Uh, you know, as, as Phil Graham is credited with saying, journalism's the first rough draft of history. So history, therefore, gets at least a shot at the second draft. And I believe, and without apology, that a biographer's job, a historian's job, is to at least attempt to see things from the other guy's shoes, the other guy's point of view. And on the Bush project, for instance, I was lucky enough because I had a you know four thousand pages or so of transcripts and tapes of how George Bush saw the presidency uh, in his presidential diary. And you can get obviously you can get seduced, you can get uh, you can go too soft, and I'm sure people say that about this. But I think you got to follow the evidence where it leads you, and. One of the things that makes this complicated and, and make, at least makes closing these books and honing these arguments tricky is you are – particularly if you're writing about Bush and I'll come back to old Jefferson in a second. But if you're writing about George Bush, you're writing into a climate where most of the folks we know uh, either covered him, all of them lived through it and there are some uh, – tableau, right, that are just ingrained in in the mind. So George Bush and the supermarket scanner. Uh, George Bush was out of touch in 92. Uh, George Bush and the furlough issue in 1988. He fell under the table with the Japanese uh, on a visit to Japan. So there are these scenes, there are these things. Jerry Ford Fell down coming down the airplane. Right. What 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 and, and on, on, and on exactly. And uh, so what I, what you have to do is say, all right, which of these episodes, as our as Ben Bradley used to say, when something bad would happen, he would say, you know, when the history of the world is written, this is not going to be in it. So one of the things you have to step back and figure out is, you know, if you're kind of thinking you're writing the history of the world, at least for you know a, a short period of time, what should you put in? And everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks, oh, that X or Y was was the most important thing, but maybe it wasn't. And the great example of this, the the QED 
if you will, is when Harry Truman left Washington in January of 53, I think he had a 20 percent approval rating. It might have been 19. Uh, it, there were a bunch of scandals, none of which I can remember the details of and none of which had anything to do with, say, the creation of NATO or the doctrine of containment or the building – Desegregating the armed forces. Executive orders on civil rights. On June 29, 1947, when he became the first American president to address the NAACP, there's a picture uh, of him standing basically where King would be standing in 63, addressing the NAACP. Um, now, did he have complicated motives? Were African-American voters becoming more important in urban areas and he needed them? Absolutely. Find me a politician who didn't have that calculation and I'll find you somebody who wasn't successful in politics. Uh, but Truman's legacy is one that, my God, we would go bananas if we could recreate, if we could find for our own time. And how long did it take? It took 20 years for – he lived for 22 years in retirement in independence. Uh, one of the things that helped his uh, rehabilitation historically was – Merle Miller, remember, did, did plain right. speaking, did an oral history of him. And it was basically just Truman talking. And one of the good things about that is it was published into an era where – a moment where everybody was upset about Johnson and his candor about Vietnam or lack thereof and then rolled right into Nixon. And Harry Truman was very lucky in that he had bought early on anti-Nixon sentiment, never liked him. And so he had all these quotations from way back about Tricky Dick. What else happens in that period? So the book is published. James Whitmore, remember this? Goes on the sh mm -hmm. does a na national uh, one-man show called Give Em Hell, Harry. And you have James Whitmore just basically presenting to an audience buffeted by Vietnam, buffeted by the Nixon administration. Suddenly, here's this truth teller who wanted to take responsibility, who wanted to be blunt. And now Truman, if we were to redo Mount Rushmore, it would really surprise me if he would not be in the last two or three to, to get back up there. So the point is, all of this takes a long time. My friend Michael Beschloss says it takes 25 to 30, even 50 years sometimes to assess a president in full historical context. I jumped on the Bush book because – if you do what I do for a living, you don't get a living president with a diary, his wife with her diary, a son who was president, all of whom are willing to talk uh, while they're still you know, firing on all pistons. I started interviewing President Bush for this in, right after his son left office. Um, and so we had about five years or so of very intensive interviews. Um, and again, the diary was absolutely essential. And you know, no man ever comes out second best in their diary or their own you know, anecdotes. But it's really hard. You know, if you're doing this two, three, four times a week within the maelstrom of the presidency, it's really hard to keep spinning, right? And so there's a lot of candor there. And there's a lot of just – it's as close as I'll ever get to being president because you have – these audio tapes, and he's it's never too late. <laughs> I'm afraid it probably is, but <clears throat> he has this. Um, he's always exhausted, uh, or he's pretty chipper because uh, he either does it late at night when he's whipped, 
Or he used to get up at five, walk Millie and Ranger, uh, two other English Springers, walk them around, go. He, he loved this little office off the Oval Office, um, and he would go there. And here's what he would do. Here, here's a sign of – and we'll, we'll leave it implicit uh, for who you might compare this to. When George Bush went to the Oval Office every morning, he went early, uh, got there about six – George Bush was always one of the most caffeinated men pre-Starbucks that you can, you can possibly imagine. He would have the papers. He'd have the White House news summary. He would sit down and inevitably somebody would be in trouble, right? Some aide had wandered into something. The papers had done something to him. So he spends about 10 minutes picking up the phone and saying to the secretary of this or the chief of staff of that, don't worry about it, and hanging up just bucking up people so they wouldn't spend their day. He knew their day was being destroyed by the Washington Post. And he wanted to say, I'm the leader of the free world. I think you're doing a great job. Keep moving. If you understand and have any sense of the ambient power of calls coming from the Oval Office suite to people outside, down the line, that was like Christmas every day when that phone rang. And he believed that ultimately it was in his interest, it was in the country's interest, that his staff faced the day with energy and a willingness and an eagerness to, to fix things as opposed to worrying about whether the president was sitting over there going, you know what, I think Ann Devroy was right, he's a son of a bitch or whatever it, it was. Mm-hmm. So that was the, that was the kind of guy uh, that 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 I got got to know, and the the, the book I wrote, and we'll see how it stands up. Um, but you're now writing a book about today, not about anyone in particular, but about the climate of of uh, that we live in today. In this new book that you have coming out in May, "The Soul of America: The Battle for Our Better Angels." You're basically telling us, as I read it, hey, there have been numerous times in our history where things seemed as they do now, discordant, divided, and here's how they played out. And it's just a fascinating exercise to put that historical perspective on it. Tell us about how you came up with the idea, how you executed it, and what you're thinking about it now. It's It started with a, a, a woman you hired or appointed, I think, uh, Nancy Gibbs, um, then the editor-in-chief of Time. It was the weekend after the uh, terrible events in Charlottesville in August of 17. And she called me on a Sunday afternoon and said, do you have anything to say about what's going on? And I said, give me a minute. And I sort of puzzled it out. And I thought, yeah, uh, basically, to go back to Faulkner, Faulkner was right. You know, the past is never dead. It isn't even past. And if you start, you can start in the 1790s if you want uh, with Alien and Sedition Acts. You know, that was a case where, I mean, see if this sounds familiar, for instance. Uh, Adams's Federalist administration decides it's not enough to beat the Jefferson Republicans in the election. They want to destroy the opposition altogether. So they passed two pieces of federal legislation to deport people and to shut down opposition presses. And it has a ring. Hmm. Right. You know, uh, you know, all right. I think that's fake news. I'm going to end it. 
Yeah, there you go. So so we really do start there. And for people who think that there's this kind of golden era and that the incumbent president is the first iteration of a, of a darker force, I refer you to Andrew Johnson, uh, who was a Democrat, war Democrat, a uh, unionist, but still a Democrat, whom uh, Lincoln put on the ticket in uh, 1864 to kind of unify some border state people and ends up uh, opposing the key Reconstruction Amendments, uh, including the 14th, which um, put the idea of equality in the Constitution to begin with. Uh, equality, remember, is a Declaration of Independence idea. It's not a constitutional idea until the 14th Amendment. And it makes the federal government the guarantor and protector of rights that tend to have to do with equality. Johnson didn't want that. Uh, he uh, believed in trying to really, really believed in returning to a kind of a status quo ante in the South and runs afoul, obviously, of, of, of the Republicans in Congress, gets impeached, does not get convicted. But if you read his state papers, uh, Eric Foner, the great historian of Reconstruction, points out that there's one, one of his annual messages is arguably the most racist presidential document in history. Uh, so you had an unstable president from kind of outside the establishment. He'd been governor of Tennessee twice, but he had a weakness for that cheap scotch we talked about. Uh, he was uh, he was sort of proud of his uh, lack of, of, of formal education. He gave erratic speeches blaming everyone else. Again, if you hear any echoes, you know, right, Huey. Uh, so we had that terrible moment. But then we have Grant, and Grant break, cracks down on the Klan, doesn't crack down on it and keep going on preventing the disenfranchise of uh, black Americans after uh, the 15th Amendment comes out, but calls the 15th Amendment, which guarantees African American men the right to vote, the most important such proclamation to have come out of this Congress since the founding of the Republic. Um, then in 1876, 1877, with the Hayes-Tilden uh, debacle, the reason Rutherford B. Hayes was able to become president is he struck a bargain agreeing to remove the federal troops from Florida, South Carolina, one other, uh, Louisiana, I think. And that basically inaugurates a 30 to 40-year period. You can argue it, it takes it all the way to 1965 in some ways of a new kind of American apartheid. And there are moment, there are brighter moments. You know, TR uh, tries to do some things, invites Booker T. Washington to dinner and the South goes crazy. When John McCain conceded to Barack Obama uh, in 2008, he talks about that dinner. It was October 1901, just after TR has become president. Uh, TR invites Washington to the White House. The, uh, it's, a, it's a great symbolic moment that perhaps we will ultimately have a kind of pluralistic, uh, more accepting society. Don't want to read too much into it, so don't, don't, don't write me about that. I understand uh, that this was a long, a long and bloody and tragic process. But you do have presidents at given moments who, despite the constraints of their time and despite their own retrograde, in our view, commonplace, in their view, 
views on race and gender and immigration, you do have them listening to those better angels. And that's the story of the country, I think. But these cycles run and you end up in the 20th century and all of a sudden you're in the you're in the 1920s and there's big immigrant scares and Woodrow Wilson and some laws that maybe people have forgotten about. Wilson Wilson segre- Wilson resegregated the federal government. Uh, if you worked in the post office and you were an African American, you ate in one lunchroom and the whites ate in another one. Uh, he he was a Southerner by birth, complicated complicated views on race, but he was not a hero on this. Huge resurgence in the Klan, uh, blocking of immigrants from a lot of countries, particularly Jews, right? Yep. And out of fear of the Bolshevik Revolution coming here, Red Scare, uh, there were terrible suppression of dissent. Locked up Eugene V. Debs, uh, the socialist uh, in prison, convicted him in federal court because he spoke against World War I. Um, a guy named – guy whose name is lost to history, but A. Mitchell Palmer, uh, who, I don't know, makes Jeff Sessions look like uh, Robert Kennedy. Uh, you know, he was he was an attorney general who was – his job, his task, his mission was to lock up people that he thought were anarchists, often without due process. But here's the good thing. Two good things happen. And this is, this is part of my point is that the, the American soul, the reason I focused on the soul is people sometimes say, oh, we're fighting for the soul of the country. I, I take a slightly different, potentially pedantic, I admit, view of this, which is the soul – which if you go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle and Socrates through the Hebrew Bible, through the New Testament, you, you have an understanding of the soul as the essence of life. It's The word itself means breath. The point of – to my mind, the point of the soul is not that it is the good thing and that therefore there are forces that are trying to contain that or, or change it, but that if we're being honest – the American soul has two different contending forces, and it's light versus dark, and it's selfishness versus greed, it's hope versus fear. And the question is, which side wins in a given era to then create a political era, political reality of which we approve or of which we are now at worst ashamed? And this is, to my mind, again, the soul had its best moments in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt, one of the great apostles of hope uh, in American life, was confronting a situation long before the Second World War where people thought that – he thought that the two most dangerous men in America were Huey Long and Douglas MacArthur because Long could have led a populist revolt from the left and MacArthur from the right. One, the night of FDR's inauguration, March 4th, 1933, an aide comes to him, an advisor, brain truster comes to him and says, you know, Mr. President, if you succeed, you will be the greatest president. If you fail, you will be the worst. And FDR looked at him and said, if I fail, I'll be the last. Hmm. So th- that was how he saw what what was unfolding. I thought that your emphasis on the themes of hope and fear stuck with me all through the book. We get to uh, McCarthyism, an era that lasted longer than I had recalled it. But then again, I was only like four years old at the time. Yeah. The run of fear there lasted a long time. But you made an interesting point 
about how McCarthyism finally came to an end. And it wasn't, in your view, really the dramatic moment mm. where Welch says, sir, have you at long last no decency? That was that was emblematic of it. But you make the case that the American people just get fatigued with one character eventually, right? And that is perhaps the most hope-filled point. Uh, and, and that's wonderfully, thank you for mentioning it, that's wonderfully not really me. It's my finding in a book that's largely unread now uh, and may have been unread at the time. Roy Cohn did a book uh, about McCarthy in 1968 uh, and it was a reflection on his work uh, for the Committee on Investigations. And his analysis is that ultimately the American people just got tired of the show and in that, Cohn inadvertently agreed with something FDR had said, which is that there is something in a human nature that cannot continually be key to the highest note in the scale. And my view is if we get out of the current madness, it's going to be not least because the dominant figure overplayed his hand. And that's what happened to McCarthy. McCarthy had four years. It was four years from the speech in Wheeling. That was Lincoln's birthday in 50. Very quickly after that, Margaret Chase Smith, a woman who's not really remembered much, but a senator from Maine, she gave an early speech called the Declaration of Conscience in which she laid out everything that was going to be wrong with McCarthy. She was early on. It was absolutely right. You have to have the right to criticize. It's, an, it's American to disagree. You cannot question people's motives. And she got all of eight senators to join her. By, night, by December 1954, so a little over four years later, the Senate votes to censure and people like Prescott Bush from Connecticut uh, vote for it. And senators like John Kennedy of Massachusetts, uh, who had a kind of friendship with McCarthy and who worried all the time that an, a, an ethnic working uh, class candidate was going to come after him in, in, in the Senate races in Massachusetts, he managed to – he stayed in the hospital. He was quite sick. But he didn't do something that you did in those days, which is he didn't pair his vote, uh, find, find somebody who was going to vote uh, for McCarthy and then say, well, neither one of us will vote. He avoided all of that. And again, my friend Michael Beschloss writes in, in his book, Presidential Courage, that there were those who believed – that Profiles in Courage, which was published in 57, 56, 57, was to some extent Kennedy's attempt to quell liberal criticism in the liberal wing of the Democratic Party as Kennedy moved toward a more national role. It was a way of saying, I understand courage even if I didn't display it in that moment. Uh, John Meacham, I can't thank you enough for joining us on Garden Guns Whole Hog. Uh, it's probably time for you to get back to the cave in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to G&G's Whole Hog, a podcast from the tastemakers at Garden and Gun Magazine, including producer Kim Alexander. Aaron Keene is our audio lead. Bruce Roberts is our engineer, and Susan Davis is our executive producer. Original music produced and mixed by Aaron Keene at Stony Hill Sound in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You can find us at gardenandgun.com and on Facebook and Twitter. 
Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, go ahead, give us that five-star review. And remember, if you're looking for a truly special dining experience in either Charleston or East Nashville, you can't go wrong with Butcher and Bee. Tell them we sent you. I'm your host, John Huey, and that's The Whole Hog. Whole Hog.